contemplation for me is a certain commitment to paying attention to the divine in all things. So in, in one's interior world, as well as the conditions of life in the world around us. Mysticism, I think, is, is kind of a fidelity to magic and mystery in our interpretation of those worlds. At least that's how I think about it. Welcome to Contemplating Now, a podcast focused on the intersection of contemplation and social justice. Through interviews with scholars, mystics, and activists, this podcast will focus on contemplative spiritualities, direct relationship with issues of social justice. I'm your host, Cassidy Hall, a filmmaker, podcaster, pastor, and student, and I'm here to learn with you. Cole Arthur Riley is the creator of Black Liturgies, a space for Black spiritual words of liberation, lament, rage, and rest. Black Liturgies is a project of the Center for Dignity and Contemplation, where she serves as the executive curator. Born and for the most part raised in Pittsburgh, Cole studied writing at the University of Pittsburgh. She is the author of the recently published book, This Here Flesh, Spirituality, Liberation, and the Stories That Make Us. Well, Cole, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, your new book is absolutely incredible and uh, your work is so important. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you and thanks for having me. So one of the ways I love to begin is just kind of a, a way to orient our conversation. So I'm wondering how you personally define the words contemplation and mysticism and maybe also how you see them lived out in the world today. I would say contemplation for me is a certain commitment to paying attention to the divine in all things. So in, in one's interior world, as well as the conditions of life in the world around us. Mysticism, I think, is is kind of a fidelity to, to magic and mystery in our interpretation of those worlds. At least that's how I think about it. Yeah, how I see them in the world today. I mean, it's it's hard, isn't it? Um, uh, it's hard to, I think, especially in Western contexts, to have it show up, particularly mysticism, with any kind of, yeah, clarity. Um, it's hard to see in other people, you know. Uh, there are certainly these kind of spaces where it's safe to to talk about one's kind of exploration of mystical things and, and mysticism but I I don't find myself read always in those spaces um I've lived a life kind of tangential to the academy to college settings and and academics and worked with academics for many years and talking about their kind of connection to spirituality and what they do um and their work or their their research and I found that you know, that was all very exciting, but when it came to talking about kind of a element of mystery and the unknown and in terms of engaging that spirituality, it was a little more difficult to do. It felt like more was at stake almost. Yeah, I, I love that. Fidelity to mystery or to magic, right? Fidelity to magic. When I hear that, when I think about that, I also think of things like transcendence. And yeah, I'm, I'm wondering if you see any association with, you know, Reverend Dr. Holmes, Barbara Holmes talks about this notion of public mysticism. And I wonder if you 
see that fidelity to magic is also um, existent in in activist movements. Absolutely. I think, yeah, I think that there's something there. There's some, I mean, when you think about what activism requires, the kind of belief activism requires, the kind of, you know, moral imagination, you know, just general imagination it requires for you to kind of protest. You're protesting, which should, shouldn't be, but to do that, it requires you have some kind of co- concept of what should be. And I think that takes a lot of kind of contemplation and, and mystical work to to dream up a different way almost. But um, but yeah, I think that there is a very credible tension, I would say, between like the the life of a contemplative and the life of an activist. I had a I talk about this in, in the book um briefly, but I had a a boss and a mentor who said, right before I began writing this here flesh, she said, you know, if there's anyone that I've met who's both contemplative and activist, they've never been able to do both well, you know, <laughs> if they're out there, I haven't met them. And yeah, I mean, immediately I thought, that's what I want, like, <laughs> kind of challenge accepted, that's who I want to be in the world. But also, I do think there's a really, there's something really credible at the t- about, about that tension that he was articulating. The kind of urgency, I think, that activism can seem to require, and does require at times, can seem in, in conflict with the contemplative, but I don't think it needs to be. Yeah, I love what Barbara Holmes says about the the contemplative life. I'm also thinking of um, this really brief article that Christian Wyman wrote for the Christian Century, actually, uh, a while ago. I think it was like a decade ago. He wrote about this tension of the the contemplative in him and and this kind of desire for action. And um, anyways, it's a really beautiful remarks on kind of what I'm describing, that that tension. It's kind of going back to a previous thing you said where you know, essentially this idea that academics have a harder time hosting that ambiguity, hosting that that space. Just you think it's just like this determination to put language to things or or what do you think that is? Yeah. Well, I can see some of it in myself. I'm not an academic. I've worked closely with them and I'm not an academic. And I'll say, okay, well, child coal, you know, little little coal, like six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I think I was just kind of born a mystic and it was like worked out in me. So when I was little, I would, um, my sister and I, I've only just recently been reflecting on these weird stories, but my sister and I, we would like literally mix potions out of expired condiments and like, um, we would like, give um each other these signs you know like you're you're the sun sign today and and uh in the book actually or you're the moon sign and in the book I talk about this friendship one of my earliest kind of friendships with this girl and we would have like ceremonies in the field at recess before I think we even understood what a ceremony was we would like call them you know this is our ceremony and like eat chocolate icing and talk to clouds. And so I had something in me that I think as I grew up became more and more legible. And what became more pronounced was like this hyper 
rationalism, you know, I became serious and, <laughs> and yeah, yeah, dare I say rational. And yeah, when we speak of, I think the mysterious and the miraculous, I do sometimes find it difficult to believe. I think maybe academics have had some of that childlike wonder and like mischief worked out of them as well, drilled out of them. So it requires a resistance in me. Like I have to, um, this like resistance to the formation that says clarity. And like you were saying, articulation, clarity and articulation are the most important things. I'm very suspicious of that, but I've been formed to think that that's the most important thing. So anyway, I'm always, I'm constantly trying to travel back and revisit my child self and her wisdom. Yeah, kind of homecoming, really. And that fidelity to magic is also kind of like you're saying, right, this fidelity to play, to pleasure, to joy, to engaging with the natural world, you know, as your child self even, and and of course, our adult selves. I, I'm thinking like, if I were to go, you know, make potions in the yard right now, which sounds like a great idea. And, and and talk to the clouds, which are pouring down rain right now. But my my adult mind would, you know, so much say, oh, but rationalize this. You look crazy. Or you, you know, all these things that kind of hinder, hinder our fidelity to play, hinder our fidelity to the magic. Yes. Yes. It's so true. It's difficult. Not, I'm not mixing potions in the basement anymore, but sadly, but I'm trying, I'm trying to learn how to just be open to mystery, like even mystery in the, in the mundane, I think. Uh, so I was watching the, the, the barn swallows. We have a barn on our property and the barn swallows are returning and I'm just watching them fly um, earlier this afternoon and watching them kind of swoop and dance and make the like wildest shapes in flight and somehow communicate, you know? And I started thinking, how do birds do that? <laughs> you know, how do they know? And like, even just to kind of pause and let the mystery and mir- miracle breathe a little bit in that, you know, very mundane observation. It's not quite the, not quite the magic of the like recess ceremonies, but there's something there, you know? I love that. Let the mystery and miracle breathe a little bit. It's beautiful. And your work with Black Liturgies is a work of artistry, poetry, therapy, activism. Um, what's the origin story of creating Black Liturgies? Yes. Um, so I started Black Liturgies in the summer of 2020, um, July, I believe. And, you know, what a summer that was. You know, I feel like that's forever going to be kind of etched into everyone's consciousness. Um, so yeah, it was in the wake of the murders of Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd. And, you know, we had these resurfacing, you know, accounts of the murders of Breonna Taylor and Elijah McClain. And I'd been in liturgical spaces for a handful of years uh, by that point and found a lot of rest, I think, rest and beauty and liturgy. And um, I've always written. And so it's been a kind of natural way for me to connect with God. And, um, but I was, I found myself so hungry, like so desperate for a, a spiritual space that like was capable of holding my, my blackness, the grief of the moment, the kind of, um, 
yeah, the the needs of the moment and the anger, my rage. I wanted a space that could hold that. And so I started Black Liturgies kind of hoping to find some like-minded people. And within that work, yeah, were you able to, and, and do you continue to get in touch with kind of that that space of tension? I think my question is, is contemplation a part of your writing process and and how do you maybe hold the tension in those moments when you write? Yeah, it's definitely, I mean, well, Start Black Liturgies has definitely developed and kind of, it's continued to contain that, you know, the the, the anger, the, the grief, but I think it's expanded into, you know, other emotional expressions. I, I'm really interested in just connecting, you know, the, the body and, you know, in embodiment and emotional experience and even, you know, thought, contemplation, connecting those and putting those into the liturgies. But yeah, in my writing, I think I absolutely need contemplation and mysticism. I I, um, I use this language, I made it up uh, of like contemplative storytelling in the book. So it was kind of important for me to put language to that. So it feels a little bit distinct. I'm really disinterested in contemplation, like purely as a mental experiment. I think more and more people are. I'm interested in, you know, embodied contemplation and emotional contemplation. And I'm trying to nurture and preserve stories in the book that are so important to me. And I think they kind of demand a a contemplation, if you want to use the language of attention, they demand a kind of sacred attention to ensure that I'm most honest and a good steward of the stories. One way that looks, I mean, I, I wrote my book in about three months. Of that time, around 17, 15 to 17 days were actually spent writing. The other days were spent in listening and and thought and embodiment, you know, being attentive to the stories of my grandma and father and resting in them, you know, as I sat in bed or I sat in the shade of the oak tree next to my house and and an embodied, you know, contemplation as well. Like I I very rarely will relay a movement or emotion in a story without practicing them. Like I don't describe a person folding a piece of paper without like mimicking that in the air with my hands. And so it's an embodied contemplation as a, you know, as a part of the writing process as well. That's, that's such a deep, deep commitment to the work. You know, like you're saying, even folding the piece of paper and taking the time to, to really let the fullness of yourself engage and tell the story. Yeah. Seeing writing is just a small, small part of that. You also, in the book, as you're saying, you write so much about the mind-body-spirit connections and the importance of embodiment and spirituality. And similarly to me, you write about the importance of undoing the whiteness of God. Do you think these things are connected in that as we move towards undoing the whiteness of God, we might also move towards a deeper embodiment of spirit as um, a closer enmeshment with the truth and the valuing expanse and yeah, movement towards towards liberation from those hindrances of those false images. Yes. Beautiful question. Yeah, I do. I think the more we undo the whiteness of God, absolutely. I think we experience a kind of, yeah, deeper and, and closer connection with the divine. I think you know, white whiteness, 
man, whiteness loves disembodiment, you know, like I've, I've started to ask this question recently of like when I'm disembodied or when I'm kind of like find myself really out of sync with my physical self. I've been asking my question, like if you weren't in your body today, who was? And the answer to that question has so often been like white capitalism and, you know, the, the kind of threat of, of productivity. And um, yeah, I think whiteness loves disembodied people because it makes, you know, those bodies more easy uh, to colonize and to take control over ultimately. And I think if you think about whiteness as a force, I mean, how disintegrated does one have to be to commit the the terrors that I think whiteness has committed? You have to be a pretty disintegrated person if you want to talk about what your body is doing. You know, the, if you want to talk about the hand that holds the whip and um, the chains and then the person with the heart and emotional experience, I think, man, has like emotional restriction been absolutely nurtured through the hand of whiteness, this emotional restrictions, detachment from one's physical self and the acts you're committing and one's emotional self and kind of empathy. So yeah, I think whiteness is absolutely a tool for disintegration, loves it, continues to nurture it. And the more we undo the kind of the force of whiteness in our um, spiritual imaginations, I think the more the divine, at least for me, kind of expands, it opens up, it becomes less about narrowing in on exactly what one thinks about any given topic. And it becomes much more about this kind of play and curiosity and, um, and mystery even. And, and, you know, my thought doesn't need to be supreme. My experience of God doesn't need to be supreme in order for it to matter and have value to me. And I think that's kind of the shift you see. Um, is that, I mean, you've thought about this as well. Is that how you've experienced it in your own work? Yeah, definitely. The more undoing I experience and the more embodied I am, the more there is to the mystery, to the expanse, to God, God's self. I mean, just, it, it's like a deeper pool, but instead of this being um, a terrifying space where I need to cling and name, it's a space of, of freedom and a space of embracing the vastness of, of God and in myself and in other people and in nature and in, you know, the squirrel outside my window. Mm -hmm. Yes. What you said earlier, you know, was, was a form of, yeah, movement away from, from that sense of, of productivity and capitalism and whatnot, even the way you chose to write this book, the way you sat in story, the way you committed to having your body be in touch with story before you put pen to paper, it sounds like. Was that like a, a conscious thing, like before you started doing the, that as practice, or was that something that you kind of just knew you needed to do and it happened? I know, honestly, it wasn't a conscious decision at all I think I was changed you know in the process of writing this book some of the stories you know some of the familial stories I'd heard before I, I'd heard kind of fragments of them um, but to become a kind of caretaker of them in a new way to have the responsibility of translating them to strangers I think 
I felt a different kind of responsibility to their stories. And even now I feel such a, you know, um, I lost my, or my grandma passed while I was in the final stages of editing the book. And what, I mean, what that does you know, to you um, in terms of wondering if you've done the stories justice. So as I, you know, as I was listening and I would call them pretty much on a weekly basis and have them, I would have a series of questions for them and have them retell portions of stories or describe certain things. And sometimes I would video chat them or, you know, I've vi lots of videos from before I'd started writing the book that I would go through and something about those moments felt so sacred and distinct that I couldn't just rush to the page. You know, if I would have rushed to the page, I probably would have brought all of me and very little of them ultimately, because I was so in my own experience of their stories as a daughter, as a granddaughter, you know, and so it required some time and space and, you know, rest um, from the like impulse of productivity, use these stories, you know, how are you going to use these stories? Cool. I had to think, how are you going to rest in them? and then honor them. And so that looked a lot like sitting around and, you know, staring at a wall or staring at a tree um, for me to really be present. Toni Morrison, oh, she has these beautiful words in the sight of memory where she talks about this practice of imagination for the interior worlds of the people that made her. Um, she was talking specifically about her ancestors who or enslaved, but I think it definitely transcends that. You know, what does it mean to have this really um, like true and honest practice of imagination for my father's world, for my grandma's world that requires time. And I love that she uses the language of practice because it is, and I think that's really compatible with contemplation and kind of what we're talking about. Do you find that practices also like a form of healing and a form of like, you know, finding, yeah, your connectivity to story and your, your movement into your truest self from those stories. Um, yeah. Do you find that as, as a form of maybe healing is the wrong word? Yeah. It's funny that you asked that because, you know, Morrison, she, she talks about that practice of imagination. And then she says, you know, they're, they are my entrance, like the, the, that the people you are kind of cultivating this imagination for, they are my entrance into my own interior world, um, which I think is really beautiful and really profound. And, you know, I'm 31, and I think I'll probably understand the depth of that as I age. But there's something in that, that in encountering my father and my grandma's stories and, and resting in, you know, their interior worlds, their lived experiences, um, I become closer to myself and there's something really mysterious in it. Like I, I have a hard time articulating it if I'm honest, but I feel so close to myself, um, especially after writing the book. I, I, I felt nearer to my own soul than I'd ever felt because I think the honesty in their stories demanded, you know, an honesty in me. And so it brought me closer to what I think, what I believe and what I've lived and my own body, yeah. I just want to name that you also have like this, this energy of utter groundedness that's really centered. I experienced that in you, that you are close to yourself. Mm, thank you. So I want to ask, and you can choose to answer both or neither of these, of course. Um, 
I want to ask what was the hardest part of the book to write and what was the easiest part of the book to write? Storytelling really comes pretty easy, easily to me um, in writing. I, I've realized very early on that my kind of strength as a writer is in storytelling and kind of play and um but listening to the stories were, of course, difficult and costly and going to the places that, you know, most parents and grandparents don't want to take their children and granddaughters. That was hard. But in the writing of it, it, it came strangely. Yeah, it felt strangely natural. The contemplative kind of reflections throughout the book. Now, those were more difficult for me, um, because I have a really difficult time, like pinning down what I want to say with any kind of certainty. So, you know, my editors will tell you that my earliest drafts were just like riddled with maybes and perhapses and, you know, I don't know, it could be. And because that's just what contemplation has brought out in me ultimately is more uncertainty. I think it's a editor's kind of nightmare. <laughs> to make sense of that on page, you know, what do you think? And my answer is like, well, maybe, maybe not. Um, <laughs> that is really hard to communicate without sounding like weak to like, to have a kind of mystery and uncertainty in your contemplation that still feels like it has a depth. I think I, I learned is really difficult because sometimes uncertainty can sound really shallow. And so I was really afraid, you know, if I don't have a clear belief on this, will it seem like I haven't, you know, thought deeply about it? And in paradox, I think the deeper you think about things, as most contemplatives will tell you, the more kind of curious and unsure you become. So yeah, I, I realized just how little I, you know, <laughs> have a firm grasp on. So the the contemplative reflections were really difficult. I think when I'm 50, I'll probably look back and just laugh at some of the things I've said, but at least I know I've told the truth as best as I can tell it for who I am in this moment, but whew, it was difficult. Yeah. Maybe some of those, those contemplative reflections are more expressed in like bodily knowing rather than language. So, so right. It was Maybe just kind of like, what do you say when there's nothing to say? Yes. Yeah. Yep. There's definitely that as well. This kind of, whew, how do you communicate the like embodied, you know, the embodied knowledge, the intuition, the kind of, um, I mean, I tell, I tell the story of a very significant dream in my grandmother's life. She was a dreamer and, you know, I'm a person of just a lot of skepticism and doubt, but I believe her. I don't believe most things that people tell me, but I believe my grandma. I've, I've, I've never wavered in that, but it was really difficult to communicate. For example, that dream, this very mysterious dream of an encounter with her ancestors and her father, her father's father and, um, you know, uncles and aunts and all of these people kind of surrounding her in, in a dream. Anyways, it's like Arthur lore at this point, but it's really hard to communicate like what I cognitively think about that experience versus like this embodied intuition I have when my grandma would tell the story, you know, things like that are really hard to think to translate into pages. Yeah. Another thing you talk about in the book is you kind of 
push push us away from this binary of right and wrong work and you hone in on expressing the importance of instead focusing on work with integrity and protecting dignity and in our society so focused on individualism and productivity yeah what is your hopes that someone might take away from from understanding this difference among other binaries you point us away from yeah i think that society kind of has a vested interest in us like making this big deal this big theater of choosing what work we'll do and what career we'll have I mean especially if you're privileged enough to attend college it's this very um yeah elaborate vocational discernment what are you what are you going to do what work are you going to choose and that's how we think about vocation yeah, and I'm just, I'm more and more suspicious of that. <laughs> and, and like, oh, okay, when you have that kind of, that sense of connection, that sense of like, I I was meant to do this, how much easier is it then for society and like a capitalist driven society to use that and say like, do, 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 you know, God's going to use you. <laughs> or, I mean, even if that's your kind of spiritual formation how is God going to use you I think society and that spiritual formation work in tandem to really get the most out of our bodies that they could possibly get how exhausting <laughs> now if you have a idea of vocation um and that discernment is like how will I do my work it becomes a little more difficult to exploit you know if you think it's about how am I going to do this work with integrity? How am I going to um, protect dignity in my work? It has a way of like disarming, I think, the powers that be, the systems that are more concerned with using you, because it decenters a product and it centers like a, a connection and, a, and an honoring. <laughs> that, that, that's one example, as, as you say, I think I was more and more when I thought about communicating a liberating spirituality in the book I did want to dismantle these binaries of like this is this is the right kind of way and this is the wrong way and more so have us think about the the why and the how and like the lived experience of the thing as opposed to this definitive choice anyways I think for me at least the more I experience kind of contemplation as well as the divine god you know as a with a fluidity i think just the more free and like playful and curious i am in my daily life it feels very liberating to me to not know or to not choose the right way or the wrong way and instead just ask why and you know to convey a human experience so anyways people ask me what you know what i want people to take away from this book and you know I say in the book I I don't really want people to come away thinking what I think I think that would be a real failure on my part as a contemplative I would be really proud if people put the book down and were closer to themselves in some way and closer to their their own kind of interior world world closer to the 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 lives they occupy and that they feel more free to explore what they think and believe mm. that reminds me of a quote from your book uh, where you write protect the truest things about you and it will become easier to hear the truth every place else 
um, which is incredibly powerful and goes back to what we were talking about earlier about the true self and finding the true self. And it seems to me that a lot of true self theology, for lack of better expression, has kind of got that wrong because it seems to me a lot of true self theology actually hosts some of those binaries and um, capitalistic and white supremacist values that are guised as your true self is within those. And it seems to me that you're, you're pointing us to a true self in a, in a really new way. You know, I haven't thought about it the way you've put it, but yeah, I, I hope I'm doing that. I think there can be a kind of like true self theology that becomes about pinpointing, like the journey to your true self is about pinpointing these very clear things about yourself. You know, I'm an introvert or I'm this or that. And it becomes this kind of process of narrowing. I'm really interested in exploration of my true self as, again, an expanding. So instead of narrowing in on this is, you know, what that means, here are these qualities. I'm, I'm trying to travel into into stories that have formed me. I'm trying to, I think encountering my true self for me means just, you know, even just the practice of going back to six-year-old Cole and, you know, resting in a memory or these fragments and not necessarily always needing to make a clear judgment about that, but there's value in the encounter itself, you know, the the nearness itself with that story or that that experience. Yeah, yeah. Who are some people today that you might name as mystics or contemplatives in our midst? Ocean Wong certainly comes to mind, poet and writer who I really admire, you know. Rita Dove, she's a poet. She has that very famous, famous phrase, if you can't be free, be a mystery. Who else? John, uh, John O'Donohue. I would say Christian Wyman, who I mentioned earlier. As I'm saying this, like uh, what all these people have in common that I that really excites me is that they're all poets, maybe even primarily poets. And I think that probably reveals a kind of innate trust I have in the poet um, James Baldwin. I mean, he talks a lot about the artists and the role of the artists, but. At one point, he says that, you know, only poets, I'm paraphrasing, only poets can be trusted to tell the truth. And I've just revealed that in myself, you know, there's something about the heart of a poet, I think, that allows, you know, poetry, it's not really about communicating a clear idea. It's these images, it's these fragments, often it's the impressions that one is left with after they encounter a poem. And so I think... I'll have to think about this more, but now I'm getting really energized by the idea of like, what do poets know that we don't, you know, about contemplation and and mysticism? There's something there. So Cole, another question I want to ask you is, what is your hope for the future of Black liturgies and for your book? I mean, Black liturgies, I I hope it continues to be this kind of harbor I mean, it's hard. It's a public harbor. So um, you always have to ask yourself, like, how safe is the space if you can't control who's who's in it, um, who comes and, and who goes? So, 
Yeah, but I hope to kind of find ways to continue to protect people in that space, protect Black people in that space, and kind of have it be, you know, a, a kind of harbor for Black emotion, the Black body, Black literature, and um, yeah, kind of spirituality that just feels safe and, and restful um, and nuanced, I hope. And I mean, for this year, Flesh and future writing projects I'm just trying to become more and more honest you know in my writing I I mentioned I'm I'm 31 I think that the the art and the literature that I'm most drawn to it's the people who have been able to find some connection with this like deeply honest self like like it, it even at cost and risk I think I took some of those risks in this here flesh but I hope to do that more and more as my writing develops to have more of a yeah more of a closeness to to like an honesty in me I'm so grateful for your work and really look forward to continuing to hear more from you and thank you for the beautiful things you shared today even the very beginning when you talked about contemplation as a certain commitment to paying attention and mysticism as a fidelity to magic and the way you talked about your writing practice, uh, the way that almost gave me a sense of permission. Anytime I go into a writing space, you know, you know, the world tells us we're supposed to write the whole time and we're supposed to sit and write. Even if it's garbage that comes out, you're supposed to sit and write. But the permission you gave me today to let my body know more about what I'm doing and what I'm saying was just really encouraging to me so thank you thank you and thanks for having me this has been a really yeah very good and peaceful conversation so i'm grateful that you have trusted me with your space that you're creating with your podcast so thanks again yeah thank you thank you so much thanks for taking the time to listen to today's episode to support this work and get sneak peeks of new episodes Join me at patreon.com slash Cassidy Hall. The podcast is created and edited by me, Cassidy Hall. Today's episode features the song Trapezoid Instrumental by Emily Sankofa, which she has generously allowed us to use. Please find this song and more from Emily Sankofa on your favorite streaming platform like Spotify or by visiting e-sankofa.com. The podcast is created in partnership with The Christian Century, a progressive ecumenical magazine based in Chicago. The podcast is also created in partnership with Enfleshed, an organization focused on spiritual nourishment for collective liberation. For liturgical resources, head over to enfleshed.com.